You can be seated, for real. <laughs> Good to see you. My name's Andy. Next week, we will be in the sanctuary. Yes. The lights are almost completely in, but we're going to be good to go. We got enough lights, the sound's in. We're still going to ask you for grace as we work out some of the glitches, but it's going to be great to move back into the auditorium. And when we talk about hot topics like sin, the whole place is going to be red. The lighting's going to be red. And when we talk about heaven, it'll be nice and bright. And when we're really hot and upset about something, we're going to kick the air down so it's like 30 degrees. And when we're cold and lukewarm. We're going to beef it up so it's hot. No, I'm just kidding. But we're looking forward to getting back in there. So uh, regular service at 1030 in the auditorium next week. Look forward to having you all there. It's going to be awesome. I also just want to give you a quick update in regards to our worship director or worship leader search. Many of you know this. You may not. Some of you. We are uh, doing a search to fulfill the position of worship director or worship leader. Our current team, we have some interim people in play who are helping us. We're trying to bring more consistency. So the good thing is, is that God has brought us good team, a good team and people as, who are a part of our congregation that are going to give us more consistency until we find that position. And uh, we just wanted to, to let you know about that. Um, the elders and myself, I put together a, a basically a nine, ten marks of a healthy worship leader or worship pastor. And the marks apply to every single one of our pastoral staff. And so if you would like to see that, I can make that available to you so you can kind of see the bar, we're very specific on what we're looking for. This is an intricate position in the church, so there is expectations in regards to fulfilling this role, and I just want to communicate that to you as clearly as I possibly can. If you would like to know more about that, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, again, it is a key position it's somebody that's going to come in and not sing or worship for you. That's not their job. There's a level of quality and excellence, but they're supposed to engage you in worship through music so that we sing the truth of who God is before we open the truth of God's word in corporate worship together. And so I just want to let you know, and those of you who know me know um, what we're trying to do here at Sun River in regards to leadership development. Our pastoral staff holds a crucial role to the spiritual life of Sun River Church. It's a position that I do not take lightly as I've been called to lead. I am accountable to you. And I promise that I'm going to preach God's word and that the leaders that stand up as a part of the pastoral team are going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is our promise to you. So this position is an important position. Our pastoral staff will carry burdens with you. We'll uh, model godliness and accountability. When we lead We'll be vulnerable to you when we make mistakes. We're not going to hide that. Thank you for laughing. 
because we believe God's word. This isn't something we're just doing. We're not, as I've said in the past, playing church. And this is important in regards to leading you and loving you well. It, it falls on our love and our authentic love for God. And, and I, just, I just want to remind you of that. Thank you for being gracious. It's been great to hear you worship through music on Sundays, and we're going to continue to lead in that way and continue to equip staff and build a team here to serve and to model godliness to you. And, and again, it's really important. I want to let you know that um, this past week, Sungrove's pastor, Dave Flagg, passed away unexpectedly. Those of you who don't know, Sungrove was planted out of Sun River Church in, I believe, 1980 or in the 80s. Many of our congregation went to Sungrove and helped plant that church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ there, and many of you here are hurting right now because of this loss. Father in heaven, we lift up Sun Grove to you. We lift up Dave and his family to you. It is in times like this where we all, many of us, have experienced hurt. And it is in times like this, the loss of a loved one, a loss of a leader, a pastor, a family member, a friend, where we need the comfort of your embrace. Will you embrace them right now? I cannot imagine how hard this Sunday is for that family, for that congregation. And so we ask you to heal. We don't know how you do that, but we know you do. Bind Sun Grove together in unity. May Sun River Church and Arcade and Sun Hills and other churches in the association be available to come alongside and love and be a part of healing and restoration. We lift them up to you in your name. Amen. It's a situation like that that causes us to do some spiritual inventory, right? It has for me to reflect on the fact that one day you and I are going to pass from this life into forever, into what the Bible calls eternity. And many of you know me very well. You know that I am driven by conviction from God's word. I am not perfect. I don't stand in front of you as a pastor who has arrived But I promise to you that I will preach every single Sunday God's whole counsel from his word. And when hard verses like we just read in public reading pop up, I'm not going to gloss over them. Why? Because I love you. Some of you are new and I've never met you, but you're here. And I know God has brought you here at various uh, places in your faith, various beliefs. But I know you're here. And I want you to know God has called me to his word, to preaching his word in the gospel. And I'm going to preach every Sunday like it's my last one. Because we do not know. Lord, teach us to number our days. This could be our last. It is a miracle (laughs) that I'm even here. If you knew about my recklessness as a child, living in the Midwest in Nebraska, I mean, we were, my brothers and I, we were crazy. 
And, and it's a miracle that I'm here not because we jumped our bikes over everything we could find, cars and ditches and rode our bikes off the roof without helmets. We never wore a helmet. It's a miracle I'm here not because we didn't have airsoft as, as boys growing up on the farm. We didn't have airsoft. We had BB guns. We had BB gun wars. I think my, my little brother still has two or three BBs in his tongue. I don't know. The, the fact that we can see. It's a miracle that we're here. It's a miracle that we're here for one reason. You know, not, not leaving God's grace out of it. We rode the cows. The cows hated us. We rode the cows. They bucked us off. They'd run under trees to knock us off their back because couldn't, they couldn't buck us off. I ex- survived electric fence multiple times. <laughs> but that's not why it's a miracle I'm here today. Nothing in my childhood was more deadly than jarts. We survived jarts. Some of you don't know what jarts are. They're illegal in the United States. I've been trying to get a set of jarts off eBay for a long time. Raise your hand if you know what a jart is. This game was amazing. Now they've got a Nerf version. Nobody buys the Nerf version. You see, jarts came in a little box, and in the box was a tiny hula hoop. It was too small to hula hoop, but it was, it was about that size. And then four dart-looking things, but they're not darts, they're jarts. That's what they're called. And they had a weighted metal sharp tip, and then a plastic feather dart-looking thing and a handle, and you would set your hula hoops on each side of the cow patty or the cornfield, and you would launch the jart into the sky, and it would stick. They are fatal. That's why they're banned. The fact that we survived jarts is a miracle. A miracle. They're they're so much fun. And the target was, was not relative. There was no arguments about how you won. The jart either landed in the bullseye or it did not land in the bullseye. Now, there were times where my brother said, you missed, you missed. No, I didn't. It's in. But all you had to do was walk up and pull the the hula hoop. If the metal tip was in the target, you couldn't. If you missed, you could pull it away. There was no controversy. You were either in or you were out. No excuses. Really, we argued still, but it wasn't over the legitimacy of whether you missed the target or not. You either hit it or you didn't. This is where I got the phrase that I use with Zach when he's approaching the green on his second shot with a wedge. Drop a dart, buddy. Drop a dart. You you take dead aim. And we would fling these things high. I don't know how we're still here. You gotta be watching, because you don't hear them. And it's over. That's why they're banned. (laughs) 
Hamartia is the Greek word for sin. It's originally conveyed the idea of missing the mark. In ancient scripture, Homer uses this word sin to define arrows hitting or missing the target. Hamartia in the Bible signifies a departure from God's holy, perfect standard. A standard of what is right in word and deed. This is also called righteousness. Again, it's a picture of missing his appointed target goal. His will. Which results in not being able to bring him glory or to please him. You go up to a person in our culture today and you say, you missed the target. That's not acceptable. That's not loving. You walk up to somebody today and you say, you're, what you're doing is sin. The person in our culture today rarely hears, hey, I love you. And you know what? Christians in the church, pastors at the front of the line are really bad at this. Where we do come across as righteous or self-righteous, like we're better than everybody else and you're living in sin. But this is not what God's call in scripture is. It's going to make you want to cry on the inside as we talk about this. There's a baby in the audience. And by the way, I love children in here. You guys are not distracting at all. And you have a beautiful baby. They don't hear, I love you enough to point out the destructive behavior in your life that is missing the mark. Instead, they hear something like, I'm judging you. You don't have any right to judge me. You don't think, how do you think you're better than me? The idea of loving sinners enough to help them deal with their sin is lost and even eliminated in our culture today. The three-letter word sin is not Christian anymore. What happened to this word? Why did it get deleted from our culture? And it's been replaced. It's been replaced with words like error or mistake, or tragedy, or affliction, or sickness, or misdeed, or faux pas, or failure. It's not a sin, it's just a failure. It's just a mistake, or weakness, or fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault I'm doing this. It's somebody else's fault. Two wrongs make a right in our culture. Martin Luther Put sin this way. Sin is essentially the departure from God. The law, that hula hoop, is the ruler or the measurement. And sin is like a crooked line. Anyone can detect a crooked line, sin, when it is, when a perfectly straight line is drawn next to it. I'm I'm not here to preach judgment on you. 
But I don't want you to walk out of here and not understand God created the hula hoop. And the jart. And he defines it. And we don't want to talk about it. But we can't understand the holiness of God and salvation if we redefine or ignore the fundamental core principle of why Jesus came and gave his life to redeem us. The scripture is clear. First Corinthians, Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or those who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. Guess who that is? Everyone. We're all out. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul goes on in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are clear. They're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. All that is like this, I warn you. As I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We see again, everyone, we're all out. None are righteous, not one. Well, I am. No, I'm not. And neither are you. Colossians 3, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you once walked when you were living in them. You once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put away all anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. God came, we've looked at this from, from the, the book of 1 John, to free us from sin. This is the gospel. It's the good news that God rescues. And we can't avoid talking about these uncomfortable things. Reverend J. Wilbur Chapman used to tell a story of a Methodist preacher who often spoke of the subject of sin. He didn't mince words in his message. He defined it as what is repulsive in the, God, in the sight of God, what is repulsive and what God hates. A leader in his congregation came up to him on one occasion, occasion and urged him to cease from using the ugly word sin. He said, Pastor, we wish that you wouldn't speak so plainly about sin. The young people, they hear you, and they may be more likely to do two things, indulge in sin or not come back to church. Please, please don't talk about sin anymore. The pastor says, I understand what you mean. He reached into his desk and pulled out a little bottle. 
He said, see this bottle. It contains strychnine. You see the red label on the side? It says poison. Would you suggest that I change the label and paste on it something that says wintergreen? He made his point. You can change the name. You can call it something else. You can soften it. But sin is clearly defined in the Bible. J. Vernon McGee says, and I agree with him, the first step towards living a holy life is to recognize the true nature and wickedness of sin in us. And so as we move through 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, which talks about sin, I'm going to invite you to grab your Bibles. I want you to see this for yourself. This is God's word. He's gifted us with his spirit to understand. And the main point that John is going to make today is that Jesus rescues and renews sinners from sinning. We talk a lot about this. Why does he rescue sinners? That's all there are? That's all there are. And he doesn't just rescue. John's going to show us that he does something else internally. He, he renews sinners from sinning. S-I-N-N-I-N-G. Sinning. It's important that we understand this. Otherwise, we will misinterpret it, misinterpret and misunderstand what is being taught. Everyone, verse 4, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Anamia is the Greek word. Lawlessness. It's where we get antinomialism, to live without the law. It literally describes that which is without the law, but it signifies something beyond just the abstract idea. Lawlessness is a disregard for an actual breach of God's law. Yes, while anomia means no law, the main idea has more to do with the thought of a willful rejection of God's law and God's will. A willful rejection. And this rejection substitutes God's will with our personal will. It's an attitude of flagrant opposition to and disregard for who God is, his character. Let me explain it this way. Lawlessness talks like this. I know God says, don't have sex outside of marriage. I know God says, don't lust. I know God says, don't lie. 
I know God says don't gossip, don't, don't have pride. I know God says don't be angry and don't be jealous. I know God says forgive. I know God says don't hate. But, it's a big but, it stinks. Sorry, I was a youth pastor for 20 years. It's not going away. It's not going to go away. I'm not growing up. I know God says this, but that's not what God meant. That's not what he meant, which leads to that doesn't apply to my circumstance. That's a a different understanding. God, God had a different thought there. He doesn't understand my experience, which leads to, no, God doesn't exist. That's how that goes. Lawlessness is living as though your own experience, every single one of us is guilty of this. Living as our experience is superior to God's plain written word. John has made a statement here. That the practice of sin is lawlessness. Now he's going to explain a little bit deeper. He doesn't let off the gas here. He, he keeps pressing it because he wants to be really clear why understanding this is so imperative. He's going to explain why believers do not live under the reign and rule of sin and continually practice lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Jesus came to deliver us from sin. I want you to know that he is making a specific point that there's a difference between continuing in sin and one who sins. We've all sinned, but that's not a justification when we receive God's grace and forgiveness to continue in that sin where we habitually make it a practice. John's point in this verse is that followers of Jesus cannot practice sin as their lifestyle because to do so would be utterly against the work of Christ on the cross who died to take away the power of of sin and to set us free to live a lifestyle of continually committing sin is contrary to the work of God on the cross. Puritan Thomas Manton wrote in regards to John 3 6 when he speaks of those who delight in sin, it's those who sin reign and who deliberately and voluntarily, easily and freely, frequently break God's laws. You're going to see that when God redeems us, our attitude, our heart towards sin changes. 
No one, he says, who abides in him continues in sin. If we abide in Christ, we can't live in sin. Sin is no longer our master. Genuine believers cannot live a lifestyle of habitual sin. It doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with it. John's using the present tense of the verb to denote a habitual defiance and rebellion. When you're abiding in Christ, there's conviction. When you're not abiding, the person who isn't abiding in Christ will feel remorse. They will feel bad for their physical consequences or the issues. There's The moral code of God is in every human being. So they will feel remorse, but the person who has been transformed by God, they, have a, they smell the stench before they didn't. Something that God does transforms their senses, their desires. So they may be in sin and struggling, but they're not okay with it. They don't live the same way they did before. Coming to Christ doesn't make you perfect overnight. The Spirit's got to, to work. The Apostle Paul talked all about this. Man, I'm struggling. There's two natures in me, and they're warring against each other. It's like the old illustration of the Native American who missionaries came to his tribe and shared Christ with him, and he received Christ, and he started to wrestle. He started to abide, and he, he says, there's two dogs living in me. And they're, they're, they're fighting each other, but there's a nice dog, and there's a mean dog. And they're just in me, and they're warring, the flesh and the spirit. They're warring. And the missionary says, well, what do you do? How's that play out? And he goes, well, I'm learning that if I feed the mean dog, the mean dog wins. If I feed the nice dog, the nice dog wins. We feed the mean dog way too much, each one of us. Something changes. You don't live the way you lived. You don't feel the way you felt. You don't love the way you loved after Christ redeems you, when you realize what he did for you personally on the cross. He paid your price. He took your place. John Owen's one of my favorite dead guys, author. He said, steadfastness in believing Jesus does not exclude all the temptations from the outside. When we say a tree is firmly rooted, we do not say the wind never blows on it. We're going to wrestle with sin. That's why we need koinonia. That's why we need to be in family together, not just to visit church. We are, once a week, we are the church to hold each other accountable, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And John is telling the church, Listen, there's all this deception going on. The false teachers, the spirit of the Antichrist, and the fake Christians, they, they want to tell you that you can be saved and live in sin. They want to tell you there's no hula hoop. And John says in verse 7, little children, my beloved my family, those who I love, those who God has called me to minister to and with, 
Little children, let no one planao deceive you. Don't let anyone lead you astray. That's what he says. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this reason, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. You read those words, when you hear me read those words, I hope you feel the reality of God's love for you, every one of you that are here. The Son of God came not to try to save us, not to try and destroy the work. God doesn't try anything. Well, hopefully this works out. If he ever said that, he wouldn't be God. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. It's what he did. The counterfeit Christians were trying to convince true believers that a person could be saved and still practice and live in habitual sin and not feel bad for it, not feel shame. We don't want to make anybody feel bad. No, you're fine. God loves you, loves you just the way you are. It's a half truth. If that was the full truth, why would he send his son to the cross to change you, to change me, to transform us on the inside out? If a man knows God, he will obey. If he belongs to the devil, he will obey the devil. You see, the mission of Satan is to tempt us to reject the authority of God. That's his mission. I've taught on this a lot. The 11 specific names of God given in Scripture, every name given, I'm sorry, the 11 specific names of Satan in the Bible. Every name defines his scheme to lure us away from the authority of God. Satan, the adversary, the devil who's the accuser. How many times? I cannot tell you how he's come and accused me. He's an accuser. The prince of this world, the dragon, and in Corinthians, Paul calls him Belial, which is a word for worthlessness or time waster. Boy, that scheme of the devil is luring people away, especially people in the church. Worthless, time waster. That's how he lures us away. We know we're not supposed to sin and miss the mark, so we just waste time. Life's short. Satan's mission is to lead us astray, and a person, John is telling us, who enjoys deliberate sin. Before Christ, did you like the sin? I did. After Christ, did you like the sin? No. I hate it. I hate it. what it does to me. I hate what it does to my family. I hate what it does to the church, but ultimately I hate what it does to the glory of God and his love on the cross. 
everything changes. This is why John uses the words being born again. In John chapter 4, he tells the story of Nicodemus and Jesus having a conversation. Nicodemus comes at night. We've looked at this. And what do I got to do? I know you're from God. Hey, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? What did you say? How is that even possible? Verse 9, no one, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. I don't, I don't have to translate any words there for us, for you. It's pretty self-explanatory. Puts it into play on a constant basis, is an okay with it, or redefines it, is ambivalent to it. For no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. When John says that a person has been born of God, and that person cannot sin, he means the person born of God has been given new wants, new desires. He's in his old body. He's still going to wrestle with his flesh. He's still going to wrestle with the flesh. But there's something new at work. The desires are being transformed on the inside out. Paul calls this in his writings in the Bible a new creation in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 4. Jeremiah calls this a new heart. God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a new heart. Ezekiel calls it a new spirit that is planted. Being born of God is being changed by God. And the dominion of sin is broken on the cross. Jesus rescues and renews. The imagery here is that of an ordinary human birth born of God. When a father begets a child, the father's seed abides in that child. Something of the father is in the child. It makes him to a certain degree like his father. God's character is the very opposite of sin. And as a child of God, we become his children. He's our father John, I want to be clear, is not teaching sinless perfectionism. Please don't misunderstand. The translation should read more like this. No one born of God is content. This is the verbiage that he uses. Before you were content, no one born of God is content to keep on sinning. God's seed abides in him. He can't be content and keep on sinning because he's born of God. This does not mean that anybody can say, I'm sinless. This isn't a declaration that Christians can stand up and say, I'm sinless. I've told you the story in my seminary class in theology where one of the students stood up and said, I haven't sinned in three years. When we're studying hamartiology, the study of sin, and the professor looks at him and goes, wow, I bet you're proud of that. 
And everybody laughed. The guy didn't quite get it. And then he sits down, and there's this pause, and the professor goes, well, start counting again. <laughs> First John 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We looked at this several weeks ago, and his word isn't in us. In simple terms, John is saying in chapter 3, verse 8, there are clearly two families. There's the family of God and the family of the devil. Yes, believers commit sins. But their hearts are bent towards God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old is gone. The new has come. How can we know? What's the evidence of this? How can we discern which family we're in? He's saying by our actions, our actions don't save us, but they point to our salvation. Verse 10, by this is the evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor does the one who does not love his brother. Children of God love and obey Jesus. Clearly, verse 9 says God's children experience something new in them. It's not something they manufacture themselves. It's something God does all by himself. You don't earn your way into his grace. God's children experience something new, a transformation that leads to to not making sin a daily practice. And it's marked by God's children loving one another. The family trees are different. The root is different. The fruit is different. The heart has, is different. The conduct is different. Justification before God is monogistic. It means one, God alone. Your effort doesn't save you. Sanctification is this process that God works through you, and you have a responsibility in that. That's more synergistic where there's two. God's still at work sanctifying you, but you have a responsibility to put to death the sins of the flesh. Justification gives you a new standing before God. You're in the family. Christ's righteousness is credited to you. Sanctification means being set apart for God. You're in his family and he's making you like his son. Jesus rescues and renews sinners from making a practice of sin. In this life, you and I will not be sinless. 
But as we abide this word that John loves, as we abide, we will sin less. Do you see the difference between a follower of Jesus, one that abandons and abides to have their character and conduct transformed, and somebody that doesn't? The story goes like this. A group of college age were hanging out. Someone suggested that they would go to a party where all this debauchery was going on. Wade speaks up and said, I'd rather just go home. And he asks his friends to let him, to give him a ride. My parents won't approve of that, he says. One of the girls in the group speaks up sarcastically and says, Wade, Are you afraid your father will hurt you? Are you afraid of punishment if you go? Wade speaks up and replies, No. No, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me. I'm afraid I will hurt him. That is the heart of somebody who has been born of God. That's not perfectionism. You see an unbeliever, a non-follower who sins is a creature sinning against the creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against the father. An unbeliever who sins against the law. An unbeliever sins against the law. The believer sins against love. This reminds us of the phrase that is so often used in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This isn't a Halloween, October 31st, phobia fear. It's a fear that leads to respect and reverence and obedience. So brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who are here today, wherever you're at on your journey, We exist here to help you find and follow Jesus. There's nothing more important than that. Nothing. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? See, John wants you to know for sure. That's why he's written this book. I want you to know for sure, he says, that you have been born of God, that you have faith. Do you believe the truth about Jesus is a defining question for every single one of us as we do spiritual inventory, knowing that we are not going to live forever? Do you love God? We will see John say in in two weeks or so from 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? And everyone who loves the Father, and everyone who loves the Father, the Father loves. So I ask you does your life, does your jart fall inside the hula hoop? Mine neither. Me neither. We're we're all together on this. 
but it's by God's grace on the cross, the blood of Jesus that washes away sin. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we sing about this truth of God's blood washing away our sin. And as we do, I want to read from you God's word found in 2 Peter 1, 3-9. Will you stand and listen to the very words of God? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us according to his glory and his excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Do you hear God's word today? For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. God, it is by your grace, your divine power, that you have granted to us to walk in a manner worthy of being called your children. And Father, if there is anybody here that is not placed their belief in you, Would you transform their heart? Would you give them a new heart? You're the one that redeems and transforms. Will you plant your spirit in them that we here at Sun River Church can walk different than the world in it and not of it? Not for our glory, but for yours and yours alone. Thank you for washing away our sins and allowing us to walk in the light of your love. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.